So I got in, um, interested in real estate investing. You know, I'm, I'm actually, um, my background's in finance, and I, uh, so I have a pretty strong background, but more so in what's been traditional investing. And it's funny that we've been touting diversification for so long, and it's been like that mix of stocks and bonds. And I really felt like after all this time preaching to others that, you know, this should work for them, it wasn't even working for myself and thought that I really need to venture out. And, you know, real estate investing just, it, it definitely interested me. It wasn't something that I struggle with. It was, you know, something that... I don't know, I got excited about right away. It made sense to me. Um, and so it's more so of creating that team and you know, knowing how to go about it was my biggest challenge in figuring out. Because with um, traditional investing, you can figure out an ETF or a mutual fund. You do online research. This took a lot more effort. And um, I know that I can't do it solo. I need to, to come up with a, a good team and a good approach. So I found Jason, um, I was listening to not his podcast, but one that he spoke on. And um, it was just at that time, I was just trying to learn. I'm like, well, you sounded pretty smart, so I'm going to listen to his podcast. So, you know, I actually listened to his podcast well over a year. And then I would say, you know, I don't know, it was more so just thinking, I don't know, it just seemed like it was interesting, not necessarily something that would be right for me. And then all of a sudden, everything clicked and it was right for me to take the steps and really figure out what Jason's all about and, and the more of the program and to see if it worked for me. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome and thank you for joining me. This is your host, Jason Hartman, with episode 1132-1132. And today, we are going to talk about population and what it means for investors and what it means for the geopolitical climate around the world. Because you know what? You should have some big concerns about this. And it's not what you think. I bet you think it's something different than what we're going to say. So we'll be with you in a moment on that. But our guest today is Dan Ammerman. He's back on the show. You've heard him on the show many times before. I know that uh, several of you follow his work. And uh, so uh, we will be uh, playing his episode in two parts today and tomorrow. Remember, of course, we're five days a week now. We've got Meet the Masters of Income Property coming up. Get your tickets at jasonhartman.com slash masters. Be sure to reserve your hotel room because our discount hotel room block rate for the Newport Beach Hotel, it's at a beautiful resort there, is expiring soon. So there really is some urgency to go ahead and get your hotel room reserved ASAP. You'll get all the hotel information after you register for the event at jasonhartman.com slash masters. I've got our in-house economist, Thomas Young, here with me. Thomas, welcome. How you doing? 
I'm doing well. How are you? Good. How are things at Econometrics in Salt Lake City? Oh, life's good. <laughs> well, that's an enthusiast. You're not a very excitable guy, are you, Thomas? Oh, yeah, I get... Oh, uh, okay. Maybe sometimes not. <laughs> well, in your line of work, maybe it's good that you're not too excitable, right? Because <laughs> all of the ups and downs uh, with the economy and all the crazy news out there. You are just about finished reading a new book that I can't wait to read, and I'm going to invite the author onto the show. The book is entitled Empty planet. Now, Thomas, isn't this the opposite of what every economist and every environmentalist and every chicken little the sky is falling person is saying? Empty planet? Are you saying we're running out of people? I thought we had too many people. That's what everybody's been saying. What's the story? Yeah, that's the author's point. Uh, if you believe the UN population will reach 9 billion by 2050, and then we may have 11 billion people by 2100. And then perhaps population will uh, level off. Um, that's the UN model. The, the empty planet model is, you know, more nuanced. Why does the UN make the prediction they make? And then what is the, the nuanced prediction in the empty planet book? Yeah, so the UN model... It's basically a continuation of what we've seen in stage four of population growth. So they, let me just go through the four population stages. The first stage is what we've had for most of human history where there was a high fluctuation, a high birth rate and high death rates, but population growth was relatively small. So at around uh, 1 AD, population was perhaps 300 million and it took another 1300 years to double to 600 million. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the reasons for that might be disease or famine. There was a high infant mortality rate, you know, things like that. Right. Stage two, uh, a high birth rate, but a falling death rate. This is this is the case that happened, say, from the 1870s to the early 20th century for, say, England, where there was a high birth rate, but a falling death rate. And the falling death rate was because of... Uh, better nutrition. Um, England was, I think, the first to implement, what do you call those pipes that are going on, going around underground? Um, sewers? Yeah, sewer system. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good invention. <laughs> I like sewers. And of course, everybody uh, may know that the toilet was invented by John Crapper. Literally, <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> At least that's what I heard. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I took that rumor as though it was true. <laughs> so I don't want to say it's verified or I've studied it, but I just think it's kind of funny. Okay, so sewers, uh, kept the population growing, right? They helped the population grow because people weren't dying of disease as much. And then mosquitoes have been a big deal. The invention of the mosquito net has been a major breakthrough in human history. And then, you know, of course, simple things like window screens and things like that. So these darn people aren't dying. Isn't that a huge problem, huh? <laughs> that was, uh, what do you call it, the Malthusian? Uh, what is yeah. It? yeah, the Malthusian yeah. Uh, theory is yeah. the birth rate would stay high, but the death rate would go down. And so we'd have a soylent moment where population was 80 billion and mm -hmm. the world would fall apart. Yeah, yeah. So referring to that 70s movie, Soylent Green, probably many of the listeners have seen it. If you haven't, you know, I'm always telling you to watch old movies and old TV shows to get a feel for what life was like. And hey, most people listening were probably even alive when that movie came out. I know I was, you know, but you really 
should watch that movie, Soil and Green. You know, it's it's an interesting uh, apocalyptic uh, look at how it was supposed to be in, I think, New York City in 2020. And hey, that's only two years away. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Okay, so Empty Planet is saying the opposite of Malthus. Is that what you're telling us? Uh, yeah, so... Stage two, high birth rate, falling death rate, then stage three, a falling birth rate and a continuing falling death rate. So most places around the world are seeing a falling birth rate and a falling death rate. And then stage four uh, is a low birth rate and a low death rate, but population growth is relatively small. And uh, they make the case that really uh, most countries now are entering something that we've really never seen before, which is stage five of uh, the demographic transition theory, which is death rates uh, slightly exceed birth rates mm-hmm. and um, populations start to decline. I think you might have more theories than I do about why the death rate would exceed the birth rate, but um, some theories that the authors throw out are there's a rise in individualism. The family structure has become less important to an individual kid born today than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. Which is sad. It's just a different world, and it's amazing how quickly it changed. Now, as you know, George Gilder is speaking at Meet the Masters. He's really an amazing intellectual, and, and some people don't know that he has written quite a bit about the uh, impact of feminism on society and family structure and population and so forth. You know, he's not well liked by the National Organization for Women, uh, (laughs) which is frankly ridiculous. You know, he has some interesting theories about all that stuff. I haven't studied that part of his work very closely, but it's interesting, you know, and so this has a lot to do with, you know, what has happened to the culture and what has happened to the family and it all basically leads to a population decline. Is that the point of the book? Yeah, that's the idea is that in 30 in thirty years from now, population will peak, maybe even sooner than then, but population will peak. And by 2100, instead of having 11 billion people on the planet, we'll, we'll have maybe 7 billion, mm-hmm. maybe 8 billion. Yeah. So pretty much where we are today. You know, that really does seem pretty likely unless there's a major advance in longevity sciences, which, by the way, I think there are some major advances coming up for that. But, you know, if you look at a couple of major swaths of the planet, right, you take Japan, you take Russia, you take Western Europe, and you take European Americans, okay, they're not replacing themselves. These populations are all going extinct. The only reason that the United States population is growing is is because of immigration. It's not growing because of the European-American, the sort of first settlers, right? After the American Indians, obviously. And so, you know, if you just take those components, you know, with fertility rates of like 1.2 and replacement rate is 2.2, you go to Western Europe and it's like everybody's old. Nobody's having kids, you know. (laughs) You go to Japan, and that country is just going extinct. You go to Russia, they're going extinct. These are a couple of big components of the world, right? And so it seems like this is entirely possible, doesn't it? Yeah, the authors give, as an example, South Korea, Mm -hmm. where fertility rates are very low, 
and if current trends continue, then the population of South Korea will be zero by, oh, it was still a couple of centuries out, but, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the population is not going to go to zero. So there'll be like, you know, one couple left in South Korea, they won't have any kids, and <laughs> you know, they'll be trying to hold the borders down, right? <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I I haven't studied South Korea. I didn't really know what was going on there. I know Japan has always talked about, like Mark Stein says, you can't have a country without people. So you just look forward. And actually, what am I thinking? I didn't even mention China. My gosh, huge impact, right, on this this equation. So the one-child policy, the disastrous one-child policy in China— has led to a huge population decline problem that is coming up. And they're going to start feeling that in about, I don't know, 12 to 15 years. And then after that, it's just a steady, steady decline, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I think most demographers thought that when China did away with that one child policy that... Everybody would have kids. Everyone would start having more kids and it hasn't happened. The, The fertility rate is still declining. Yeah. You know what is a fascinating book? The listeners have asked me to talk about my book list, right? I have not kept that up to date at all. But here, folks, I'm going to give you a recommendation for a fantastic book. And Thomas, maybe you've heard or read this one. It's called The Bet. And I've mentioned it before. It's about Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon and our gamble over the Earth's future, right? The Bet is just a fantastic book. It's really interesting because it chronicles these two thought leaders who had completely different worldviews about population. And, you know, starting in maybe the late 70s, or I mean, the early 70s, or even the late 60s, possibly, and how they were just duking it out in the media, you know, going around talking about their views on things, right? And so one was the Malthusian, right? Thought that, oh, you know, people got to stop having sex because they're having babies, and, you know, it's just going to be a disaster and all this kind of stuff. And it just shows you how the Malthusian view of the world is just, it's just a bankrupt ideology. It seems like it makes sense, but it's very zero-sum game oriented because it views people as the cost or the problem, not as the resource that they really are. And people solve the world's problems. They don't, they certainly create some too, but ultimately I have a lot of faith in humanity and I think people solve problems. So When you have fewer people, you have fewer ideas. You have fewer problem solvers. That leads to problems. Now, of course, people need to be educated. They need to contribute to society. They need to be motivated and ambitious. And uh, slackers don't contribute much. (laughs) So I'm assuming everybody will ultimately become a contributor to society, right, in that equation. But, But the bet is a really interesting book. I'd highly recommend it. And I can't wait to read Empty Planet. You know, hopefully we'll get the authors on the show. Anything else you want to tell us about the book or, you know, just your views on population in general? You know, what I haven't asked you, Thomas, is the magic question. What does it mean to the economy? What does it mean to real estate investors? What are your thoughts there? It means a lot. It's hard to generate growth without population growth. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking how many homes there are in the so-called developed world. Mm -hmm. So if there's 2.5 billion population and you assume about a household size of around 3.1, then you get around 900 million homes or Mm -hmm. places. 
I guess, I mean, I think demand would increase for higher end homes as population declines, but the lower end homes, you know, if population's declining, but the overall population that's left has more money, then that money goes somewhere and part of it goes into higher end homes. Right, right. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Okay, so before we freak out all of our real estate investor listeners, let's just kind of couch this in the proper light, hopefully. So first of all, what I have been saying for the last 15 years in talking to real estate investors about my beliefs about macroeconomic trends and population and so forth, is that my investment strategy, very, very sound strategy, think all our listeners will agree with that. Even if they hate my politics, they agree with my investment strategy because I, I hear them tell me that all the time. But I have said many times, if we don't have a stable or increasing population, all bets are off. In a population decline environment, all bets are off. Now, <laughs> here's that. that's what we're talking about today, right? But here, you got to remember something. First off, Thomas talked about world population And when we look at investments, we're really only, you know, focused on the U.S. market. Okay, so that's one thing. But the other thing is that these trends are very far out from an investor time horizon perspective. We're talking about, you know, the year 2100. Okay, so you got 82 years before that, right? So you don't have to worry about this stuff too much in your lifetime, uh, listeners. Okay, but the long trend, I agree with it. I think we will see... um, population certainly level off. The wild card in this whole thing, you know, certainly we know that as people become more prosperous, they have fewer children. That's been proven over and over again. But the wild card here, Thomas, is longevity. If there's a real spike in longevity and people are living 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, who knows, maybe 100 years longer, who knows, who knows? These predictions will not come true at all, right? Uh, But we just don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah, it's a great thing about life. Yeah. And there's certainly a lot of advances in that. So listen to my longevity and biohacking show for more information there. Hey, Thomas, you know what? We got to get to part one of our guest today, Dan Ammerman. Let's have you back on later this week and talk a little bit more. Maybe we can wrap up on this. And I want to talk to you about minimum wage, the minimum wage effect on the economy. And we got to get into talking a little bit about retail sales and what that means for investors as well. Without further ado, let's hear from part one of Dan Ammerman. We'll have part two on tomorrow. Here we go. Join us March 23rd and 24th for the 2019 Meet the Masters of Income Property. Let's break this down and look at some of the strengths of income property as an asset class. I found that this event is really helpful because I'm totally a newbie to real estate investment. And so I picked up so much information. One of the great things about it is that it's so fragmented, right? Embrace the fragmentation. Uh, I've actually been learning a lot about the tax benefits to uh, real estate and a lot of, I've been investing actually well over 10 years now and I learned a lot of new things today. The other advantage of this weekend is networking, meeting new property managers, meeting new area specialists, and and seeing the product they have to offer. That changes year by year. Register now at jasonhartman.com slash masters. 
It's my pleasure to welcome a returning guest back to the show. He's an old friend. He's been on many times, and that is charter financial analyst and author of several books on economics and finance, uh, Mr. Dan Ammerman. Dan, welcome. How are you? Good, Jason. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you on again. Good to have you on again. So my listeners have been following your work over the years as as we've had you on the show. I think I've been following your work for a good 12 years now, I want to say. Would that be about right since I went to that first That sounds about right. Yeah. I remember I met you in Newport Beach in 2008. Yep. <laughs> That's well then it is about right. Yeah, exactly. What is going on now? You you've been uh, lately diving into studying the Fed cycle. I'll have you explain to the listeners what that is, but you know what it means to real estate investors, investors in general, the broader economy. Tell us what your latest work involves. This is something I've been doing for uh, a number of different years. And what I've done recently is I've taken a much more heavily quantitative look, and I've also created a framework for looking at what's been happening in terms of the Federal Reserve interventions. They've been getting much more heavy-handed than they used to be. We are now seeing some flashing warning signs of a possible recession next year or two. We don't know for sure yet, but it looks like the chances have really been rising. And that means that we could be seeing some truly major Federal Reserve interventions again. It looks like the Federal Reserve has effectively paused when it comes to its increasing interest rate cycle. And it looks like the Federal Reserve is also effectively about to pause its winding down of the balance sheet which means the starting point for any future expansions, instead of being under a trillion dollars, may be $4 trillion, and then building on top of that. Uh, Something else that I've been studying that I think would be of particular interest to your readers, and I put together a series to kind of make it visually obvious so people can really understand that I'm calling the Five Graphs series, which is taking a look at real estate prices – how they used to behave, and how they are now working in just an entirely different way than they used to, and how to understand what's happening with the economic cycle, with the traditional Fed cycle, and then we have this amplified Fed cycle where they're just basically doing more and more major interventions all the time, and that is very directly spilling over into changes in real estate prices on a national basis. Well, that, you know, you had me at real estate prices, Dan, and I think you had everybody else. So you're saying that the traditional influences of those cycles of real estate prices up and down are different now? Are we in a new era? Yes, we are, and we have been so since about the year 2000. And the change was just radical. And again, I have this, this is a series of graphs. So there's a visual component. It's it's a lot easier to just look at the visual side instead of talking about it, but I'll try to talk you through it. If you go back in terms of real estate data in history, it's much more problematic than things like stocks and bonds and so forth, because the issue is, of course, the country has been changing the entire time, and that's reflected in real estate prices. The uh, average size of the home has been increasing over the decades. The average amenities have been increasing. And we've also had an increasing concentration of the population into higher dollar urban areas instead of the more lower dollar small town rural areas and so forth. So just literally tracking housing prices doesn't really do anything for you. One thing that people do, of course, is they track the uh, Case-Shiller Index. I very much prefer to use the Freddie Mac 
housing price index. But what each of those have in common is that they use a pairs-based methodology. So they're taking basically the same homes and they're tracking the sales prices on them at different points in time instead of just average homes. So you have a really good idea that if you're comparing prices from 20 years apart, and of course there's all kinds of averaging and so forth that goes on, right. it might be this 2,200 square foot house on this block in this neighborhood. Right, right. How okay, much so does let that me, price let, change? Yeah, let me say something, a couple things about that. So number one, I like this methodology because, you know, it kind of reminds me in the world of the stock market when they're looking at retailers and they talk about same store sales, right? Because it's, that's sort of like, if a company is expanding and it has more stores, Stores or it's contracting and it has fewer stores and more, you know, businesses condensed into those fewer stores or the expansions just because it's, you know, got all this new market share, that doesn't really tell you as much as same store sales, right? Yes. And it's the same house sales yeah. is very much the same thing. It's a much more accurate way of tracking things. Right. The only thing we have to look at on that is that, I don't know, most or many or what the right word is, but... You know, a lot of times these houses are improved. Sometimes they're improved pretty dramatically if it's one of these sort of investor areas where there's a lot of rehabbing going on or one of these yuppie areas where there's a lot of keeping up with the Joneses going on, right? Either one of those will be hot, what I'll call high, you know, high improvement. Like that's added value. That's not appreciation. That's just improvement, right? And there's a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so it doesn't account for that, but it's still better than the other way. It is. The issue we have, though, is you can't really go back to, say, 1910, 1920, 1940. It wasn't really being gathered then. So effectively, we're going back to the early to mid-1970s. Mm -hmm. The initial period that I tracked was uh, 1975 to 2000, and it was fascinating because homes were an almost perfect inflation hedge during that time period. In fact, they were a much better inflation hedge in terms of correlation with changes in dollar value mm -hmm. than gold is. You know, a lot of people say well, that couldn't be true. Well, it's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. Housing would move up and down in a range, and I looked at it on an inflation-adjusted basis very consistently, within 10% of the long-term average. It would basically never go below that or never go above that. So if you use a, a principle some people use called regression to the mean, mm -hmm. which says whenever you get away too far away from average, that investment's going to move back the other direction. Mm -hmm. that, that worked perfectly mm -hmm. for housing for many years. Right. But then we had the crisis of 2001, which followed the popping of the tech stock bubble. Mm -hmm. And we had a recession at that time. And that's when the Federal Reserve really kind of got the crazies going in, in terms of the interventions and the amplifications we've seen since then. In order to contain the damage from that recession and to try to reboot the economy, they moved interest rates down to a 50-year low, mm -hmm. which was below 1%. Right. And in in real terms, I think we'd probably both agree those were definitely negative interest rates, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that happened is they moved mortgage rates down to 50-year lows. Mm -hmm. If you track it graphically, it's just like a perfect correlation. You can see exactly where the real estate market, single-family housing in the United States, just completely burst out of its previous bounds. And it went up by almost six times 
what it previously would have been in terms of a maximum. Mm-hmm. And so instead of going up by 10% inflation-adjusted terms on a national basis, and that's the nice thing about the Freddie Mac index, Case Shiller is just the you know the 20 largest urban areas. Mm-hmm. Freddie Mac is all 50 states. Just even going across all the different rural areas, including all of that, it was still about a 60% gain. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it came back down again. But the interesting part is it never returned to average. It never came down to the mean. Mm-hmm. And since then, it has, of course, rebounded mm-hmm. since about 2011, 2012. And in nominal dollars, we have the highest prices yet. In inflation-adjusted dollars, and again, you got you have to see the graphs, it's an almost perfect duplicate of what we're seeing in the early 2000s, if you look at current real estate prices. And in order to explain that, I then took several other factors into account. The first one was changes in the yield curve. And you may have been talking about changes in the yield curve recently. A lot of people have been doing so in terms of a potential yield curve inversion. And typically what happens is that yield curve changes are kind of contracyclical when it comes to the overall interest rate cycle. Generally, when interest rates are going down, yield curve spreads are increasing. So that means that mortgage rates are not dropping as fast as, let's say, short-term rates. But on the other hand, when rates are going up, as we were seeing until very recently, short-term rates tend to rise much faster than long-term rates. And because just 30-year fixed-rate mortgages is the most common example there, that's priced above the 10-year treasury. So the, the yield curve spread helps explain how that goes up and down. And if you put what the Fed is doing together with, and again, this all works better graphically, with the changes in the yield curve, you get changes in mortgage rates. Then you get changes in mortgage payments when you, on an inflation-adjusted basis, when you build in the prices as well. Mm -hmm. And once you take those five steps and you put them all together, you have a perfectly predictable pattern Mm -hmm. where housing prices begin to make perfect sense. Right. Yeah. And where we currently are and where we were in the early 2000s were entirely logical when you look at mortgage payments on an inflation adjusted basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's good. And so let's remember that and let's go back to that in a moment. But the thing we also, of course, have to say, which I know you understand all too well, but just to remind our listeners, and we may have some new ones, three types of markets, linear, cyclical, and hybrid. Most of the attention goes to those cyclical markets with a glorious highs and the ugly lows, not the, you know, middle America linear markets that we like the best. And all of this talk about pricing doesn't take into account rental rates. In fact, like you mentioned earlier, Dan, a lot of that is counter cyclical, because when, you know, prices decline or soften, at least, and there's not as much interest and urgency to go into the for sale market, we usually see upward pressure on rents. And then we see the opposite when the sale market is just going crazy. This is the problem with having a Federal Reserve, you know. It reacts too quickly. These, If the marketplace was governed by a free market rather than a centrally managed economy, we would see, I would argue, much more gradual changes in ups and down cycles. But when the Fed cuts interest rates or they raise them and cause ur- urgency by raising them, you know, and to a point, obviously, then it levels off or declines. But, you know, it just causes too much craziness in the marketplace. It's like a feeding frenzy. It's ridiculous. You know, that's not a normal market shift. It's the result of a centrally managed economy, right? And it's now directly translating into real estate prices 
to an extent that is historically unprecedented, mm-hmm. or I should say the last approximately 20 years have created an entirely different price cycle. And as you point out, of course, that's different in different regional locations. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What does this mean today? And like, what can we expect? Well, you know, predictions, everybody, <laughs> you know, everybody wants a prediction yet. <laughs> Few are willing to make them. But now what do you think? Oh, I'm willing to make one. Okay. And this goes back to analyses I've been doing for many years, but I have a a current series going where I'm looking at how the Fed has reacted at different points, changes in the cycle over the last 20 years and what it does next. And we have a, unless they've repealed the business cycle, (laughs) we're going to have another recession. Right. And uh, I did a recent piece tracking this, looking at the characteristics at different points in time. We've had 34 cycles of recession and expansion over the last 164 years. Mm -hmm. The National Bureau of Economic Research looks back to December of 1854. Wow. And it's kind of a night and day cycle. Mm -hmm. And every time you get a really long day going, there's a group of people who will decide, well, you know, that nighttime's not going to happen again. <laughs> this time is different. It's those famous words that always get you in trouble. This time is different, and right. then it's not. But what is truly different is that we have an increasing number of warning signals of a potential recession starting in the next one to two years. Mm-hmm. And the Fed this time around had to pause their increasing interest rate cycle at the lowest levels that we have seen in many decades. Mm-hmm. They're only about between two and a quarter and two and a half percent. And here's something that we know about the Fed. We know what their policy is. We know, and again, I've got graphs of this and more information on my website. Mm -hmm. Um, Modern monetary policy, which sounds really complicated. Yeah, MMT. We've had some uh, interesting uh, discussions about that on the show. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is, yeah, yeah, this isn't actually MMT. Okay. This is just monetary policy. Oh, okay. You're not talking about the philosophy known as MMT. No, I'm not talking about that. I'll bet you had some interesting discussions. We had Mike Norman on. He hung up on me, but then he came back on and did the show and complained the next day. (laughs) Okay. It's entertaining. What the Fed does, and they do it every single time, mm-hmm. and it's it's not that complicated, is every time they're either in a recession, they may have not realized it because this doesn't, you know, don't have the statistics in real time, or they think they're about to go into a recession, they take a sledgehammer to interest rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they knock them down. It's too sudden. It's too abrupt. Yeah. Exactly. And we know exactly what they're going to do. And they're talking about it mm-hmm. in the minutes. If you look at some of the FOMC meetings, the first thing they're going to do the next time they think we're in a recession or we're in danger of going into one is they're going to immediately reduce interest rates to zero. Mm-hmm. They're going right back to it. Yeah. And if you look at their staff discussion, this is publicly available, again, minutes of the FOMC, what they are expecting is that rates at what they call the ELB, the effective lower boundary, which is 0%, that's just Fed speak, Mm -hmm. to be more frequent and more protracted in the future than they've been in the past. Mm -hmm. So as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, you know, I think a lot of people think that our our 0% interest rates were just kind of this one-time anomaly that couldn't be predicted and will never happen again. Mm -hmm. Now, the Fed's expecting we'll go right back there. Mm-hmm. We'll go back there frequently and we'll go back there for longer periods of time than we've been in the past. Yeah. And that completely changes things when it comes to real estate. It, it sure does. Banks. Yeah. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.